0: The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Vits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com forward slash subscribe.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to start a series of shows on South Asia, two in particular. First, we're going to focus on India. Then next week, we're going to talk about Pakistan. India is by far one of the most interesting geopolitical relationships that China has today. It's one that is not very closely followed in the West and certainly in places like Africa and South America, but yet it remains the most consequential geopolitical relationship of our time, especially for those of us here in Asia. While many people, of course, are focusing on the situation in Ukraine and the tensions in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea, we cannot overlook what is going on with India and China. Now, it's very confusing. And you and I, Cobus, have struggled to try to understand this in our daily news coverage on the issue. So, on the one hand, we see things like the Indians announced a pullback of troops from the line of actual control—that's their disputed border with China. There was a mutual pullback. We all thought, in the run up to the Samarkand Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit, where Xi Jinping came out of hibernation for the first time in three years, that there might be a meeting between Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping. Not only was there not a meeting, okay, these two guys barely looked at each other. It was absolutely fascinating to watch the body language. And Kobus, as a Japan expert, you know that this body language thing is very important that when the Chinese and Japanese prime minister, for example, meet and talk to one another, they have this coded language of, I'm not gonna look at you, I'm gonna have this kind of dead fish handshake. And and that's a little bit of what was going on in Samarkand. At the same time, though, Chinese and Russian and Indian troops participated in these Russian war games, so we thought that was something that was interesting. Also, the Indians and Chinese are very enthusiastic participants in the BRICS coalition. At the same time, there are all sorts of problems. Chinese tech companies are coming under huge pressure in India. There is a lot of tension in Sri Lanka between India and China over the debt and the economic collapse that's happening there. And then, of course, there is the border issue. Now, This is the critical issue right now. They call the border the line of actual control, and it's a part of the border high up in the Himalayas near the Tibetan Plateau, and the current dispute between the two countries dates back to to 2020, when Chinese and Indian troops actually opened fire on one another for the first time in 45 years. Now, there are disputes over how many soldiers on each side died in the conflict. The Chinese say one number, the Indians say another. The fact is, though, is that there were casualties on both sides. They seem to be in the low dozens of troops. Some were caught in the conflict, some apparently died of drowning. But at the end of the day, soldiers died in this conflict. Since those tensions, it has gone from bad to worse. Last May, the Indian Army redeployed six divisions from the border with Pakistan to the line of actual control to bolster forces faced off against the People's Liberation Army. The Indian government asserts that the Chinese People's Liberation Army Air Force has also made repeated illegal incursions into Indian airspace along the line of actual control. Let me be very clear, that is a disputed contention. The Chinese Air Force says they have not done so. But nonetheless, you can see where we are right now in terms of the tension and the misunderstandings. And Indian media and social media are constantly ablaze with all of these anti-Chinese stories. And in fact, it was Indian social media and Indian media that played a critical role in the recent fake news story about a coup in Beijing. So everybody's kind of primed for a lot of misinformation and disinformation. But that being said, China's ambassador to India, Sun Dong, he recently said something very different and is telling a totally different story. A couple of weeks ago during a speech to mark the Chinese National Day, Ambassador Sun said that the situation on the line of actual control is moving towards what he said, and this is his word, normalized. Let me read a quote to you from him. The current border situation is overall stable. The phase of emergency response since the Galwan Valley incident has basically come to an end, and the border situation is now switching to normalized management and control. Now, I think if you went to New Delhi and asked anybody, is this situation normalizing? They will probably be a little bit surprised. There might be some raised eyebrows. This came as a surprise to a lot of people also within the Indian foreign ministry. And it also came up at a recent press conference with India's external affairs minister S. Shankar, who was asked to explain the discrepancy in how both countries apparently frame the standoff along the border and whether something was lost in translation between Ambassador Sun's take and what the Indians have long been saying. Let me play some sound for you so you get a sense of what's going on here. First, you're going to hear a reporter's question on the issue, and then you're going to hear from the minister. So you have consistently maintained in China that
2: till uh, agreements on the border are respected, the situation cannot uh, become normal. Uh, China even today said that the situation at the border is overall stable and the emergency response seen after Galwan has moved to quote-unquote normalized management and control. And we have seen this consistent messaging from Beijing about how things are okay, despite your position. Is something getting lost in translation? Do you want to send a stronger message? Mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now,
2: uh, look, uh, I I think uh, if uh, the spokesperson of a foreign ministry were to say something, I would urge you to seek comment from the spokesperson of the foreign ministry uh, of the corresponding uh, country. Uh, I think uh, what I have said, uh, uh, to my mind, represents uh, accurate policy uh, assessment of where the state of our relations are, uh, we continue to strive for uh, uh, for a relationship with China, uh, but one that is built on mutual sensitivity, mutual respect and mutual interest.
1: Kobis, he could barely even say the name of the country, China. I mean, again, you cannot overstate how complex and how strained relations are between these two countries. It's very important to mention, again, there are literally heavy artillery batteries facing off against one another. They have disputes in the Indian Ocean, in Sri Lanka, uh, in a number of different fields. That being said, Kobus, you did an analysis last week on a very interesting speech given by Joe Bo who is a former official in China's Ministry of Defense and now a researcher at the Center for Strategic and Security Studies at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And he wrote that India is going to have to adapt to China's presence in South Asia, particularly the PLA's Navy's growing presence in the Indian Ocean. But at the same time, you said that he gave a much more nuanced argument for a Chinese audience about Sino-Indian ties. Tell us more about what Joe said.
0: Well yeah it was it was very interesting um it was this uh you know the, these long comments uh, of a made during a keynote speech uh, at a conference in london um which is then reprinted in the chinese media um and so the headline is basically that that the one thing he said i think that that, that people would draw as the headline is that china has been a presence in the indian ocean since the ming dynasty and that that india will basically have to get used to it you know that's that that there will be chinese warships in the indian ocean and and india will you know have to put up with it but i think you know kind of one Once you get kind of like down you know kind of down into the comments then um it was interesting because he was focusing a lot on how the two should try and work together particularly in relation to to this this concept of the, the kind of asian century like making making uh you know 2020 like the 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 the, the 21st century uh you know a, a century that's driven by by asia by by asia particularly and then, but then specifically by china and india being the two largest economies in the world um and he was also saying that that in a lot of ways india in china's positions are very similar and that they both actually face quite similar pressures from the united states um and that india's india's quad membership is a lot more ambivalent than it seems and that in a lot of ways india's position in the quad is changing the quad itself into something else you know so it was all very kind of interesting to see you, you, to see how how the kind of different border issues are being are being discussed in china
1: well, let's try and figure this out from somebody who literally wrote the book on the issue. Anath Krishnan is the China correspondent for the Hindu newspaper and author of the best selling book, India's China Challenge, that was published back in 2020 and absolutely essential reading for anyone interested in this topic. Anath, a very good evening to you in Beijing and thank you so much for joining
2: us. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: So we set up a little bit of the complexity. This is what you focus on every day for your readers in the Hindu. Earlier this summer on your Substack newsletter, you wrote about the new normal in India-China ties. Let's start there, taking into account everything that's happened since you wrote that post. What is the new normal?
2: I think, Eric, you kind of summed it up very well in your introduction, where I think the basic problem is India and China have a different sense of what normalcy in the relationship is and should be. Uh, As you rightly pointed out, uh, the Chinese ambassador to India uh, made the statement that he felt that the border situation was now under normalised management. Uh, India's view is it can't be normal when, as we speak at this very minute, uh, there are 100,000 troops uh, in forward areas, uh, around 50,000 from each side, present along the border as we speak. And they weren't there uh, in March 2020. So from India's point of view, it's pretty clear that unless there's a de-escalation and de-induction of these troops who never should be there in the first place, uh, according to a series of past border agreements, that it's very difficult to look at at a normal relationship with China. It's still a bit unclear in terms of how China really explains this new normal. I think that but it's very clear from what the Chinese ambassador and other people in Beijing have said Uh, At some point in the last couple of years, Beijing seems to have taken a different view uh, in terms of how it wants to enforce its claims on the line of actual control, which is called a line of actual control, because I'm not sure how many of your listeners would be aware that there never has been a demarcated border between India and China. So I think that at some point, it seems Beijing took a very different approach in enforcing its claims, which we can go into in more detail, but in a nutshell, it's pretty much led to a very new way of both sides managing the boundary. Uh, And it's much more an active LAC than it ever has been in the last, I'd say, 30 plus years. Uh, And the result of that is that the boundary, which is something that past leaderships between India and China tried to keep to the side, has now become the central focal point of the relationship, uh, which in a nutshell means uh, that it's going to be a more confrontational relationship than it was in the past.
0: So you know, going back to to Joe Bo's comments, um, the way that he breaks down, I'd like you, you just read you a, a, a one paragraph from from his, his statement, and, and and just like you to get to, to respond to it. According to his breakdown, and I, I quote, and this is just just for full disclosure, this is he wrote in Chinese, and I'm reading it through Google Translate. Frankly speaking, the border issue plaguing China-India relations cannot be resolved in the foreseeable future because the line of actual control in the border area has not been demarcated. And China and India have different views on how to resolve the border issue. Basically, China wants to take a top-down approach, first identifying the political principles of mutual understanding and accommodation, and then dealing with border issues, while India's view is a bottom-up approach, hoping to maintain the status quo by proving the line of actual control. What do you make? Of that of that breakdown,
2: I think that Corbis. The, the the way India and China have looked at it is uh, in 1993, uh, both of them signed a first ever agreement on maintaining peace uh, in border areas, even though the LAC was not demarcated. Uh, and what they also agreed on in 1993, and then in 1996, when they came up with a very very detailed confidence building measures that govern how both sides should patrol in disputed areas. They agreed to slowly uh, demarcate the LAC, iron out their different perceptions, and come up with, uh, you know, more solid ways to manage how they patrol the border. So that was followed by what Joe Bo actually mentioned. It was followed by a political understanding on political parameters and guiding principles to settle the boundary dispute that was signed in 2005. Um, and that was followed by uh, a border defense cooperation agreement in 2013 that very, very uh, detailed ways in which they patrol. For example, it says if two patrols come into, each, uh, come into contact with each other, uh, they won't tail the other. They will immediately display banners and go back to base. So you have these four very detailed agreements that I think worked very, very well. Uh, maybe we don't give enough credit uh, to how well they worked from 1993 until 2020, you didn't have a shot fired, you had minor points of disagreement, but no major crisis. I think the big unanswered question now, and something that from my own point of view here in Beijing, I haven't been able to get a clear understanding of, is why at some point China, it seemed—it seems to me as well, by deploying uh, two divisions in April 2020, when India was unprepared, uh, why at some point they decided that these four past agreements no longer work. I've read articles by Chinese analysts saying that they felt uh, that India was improving its infrastructure uh, in a way that threatened China, so they felt they had to respond. India's argument is the Chinese already had superior infrastructure, so they are playing catch-up. Whatever it is, uh, the very fact is that these four agreements that played a huge role in not only keeping the peace, but allowing India and China to, to develop trade relations, investment relations. I think these four agreements are now perhaps no longer relevant or they've been called into question. So I found it interesting to hear Jobo talk about uh, the need for political understandings and the need for managing the boundary when you have all of these arrangements and architectures in place which now seem to be disregarded. So I think the view from Delhi very much is that they want Beijing to go back uh, to what they spent all these years building rather than now come and say, that India and China need to sort of reinvent the wheel and find new ways to manage the border.
1: Yeah, I guess that's what I'm also confused about because when you look at the current challenges that China's facing, intense pressure from the United States now over Taiwan, it's got a you know issues in Xinjiang, it's facing a contentious relationship with Europe, North Korea is always a problem. And the list of challenges right now on the foreign policy agenda are enormous. Why are the Chinese picking a fight or maybe I don't want to. Let me rephrase that because they would say they're not picking a fight. They say the Indians are picking a fight. But why not defuse this? Because at the end of the day, it seems like the Indians are a wild card for the Americans in many respects because they're not aligned on Russia. Uh, they're not entirely, as Cobus pointed out, aligned when it comes to the the Quad. And and it seems like that the Indians and Chinese have a lot more that they could benefit from if the tensions were dialed down than if they are as confrontational as they are today. What's your sense from talking to your sources in Beijing, either in the scholar, the think tank, the policy community, about what the thinking is for China to continue to have these tense relationships and to deploy the way they have?
2: So very clearly, Eric, the thing that I hear from them is, uh, as you rightly sort of assume, they would say. They say that everything they were doing was responding to what uh, the Indian side was doing in Galwan Valley, where all of this kicked off in early 2020. But the way that I look at it, having covered past disputes as well, even if uh, it is, say, even if you sort of assume the Chinese claim that India was carrying out construction activities in Galwan Valley, uh, the Chinese side has released satellite images. Uh, to show India, uh, the Indian side building a bridge, which India says was on its side of the LAC. The fact still remains that when these issues have cropped up in the past, there are systems and channels to deal with it. You sort of go at the local level, you talk it out. uh, India might take down a bridge. China might start building a bridge somewhere else. So these very small sort of disagreements keep uh, popping up. what surprised the Indian side was the Chinese response this time was to literally send 50,000 troops and carry out multiple transgressions in five or six different points on the LAC. So it's very difficult to understand uh, the argument uh, that the Chinese make that they were only responding because the fact of the matter is for the last two and a half years, what both sides are actually negotiating is on India's uh, demand for a return to the status quo. So obviously, if one side is asking for a return to the status quo and the other side is denying it, I think it's quite clear who sort of took the steps to change the situation. The other fact is, uh, as a different number of Indian media have reported, and the Indian government actually has been playing down, the fact is that India has lost access to a huge amount of territory in the last two years. And India has lost access to several patrolling points, by some estimates, more than 1,000 square kilometers of territory in various areas in the last two years. So it's very clear that uh, it was very organized what uh, China did. I don't think it was something that was uh, something decided by a local commander, given that they moved in in multiple points at the same time. And it's a denial of access to patrolling points at various points along the border, which suggests to me a high-level decision by China to change how it was managing the border with India. I think it's still a mystery as to why this happened, because if you just look back at the last two years, you had Prime Minister Modi come to Wuhan for a summit with President Xi in 2018. And then you had President Xi travel, unprecedented for him to travel all the way to India and spend three days in Chennai for a summit in October 2019. This is something he hasn't done. I think only with the US he's done that. So... For many people in India, it was a sense that there was a high-level agreement between Modi and Xi to keep things stable because, as you said, China was dealing with problems with, with the U.S. in particular, and it wanted a stable Western periphery. So to go from October 2019 to April 2020, it's something I'm seriously finding difficult to understand. And
1: uh, Yeah, it's remarkable how fast. That's right. It's just incredible how fast that's changed.
2: Right. And I and I honest, honestly, I haven't got a clear, straight answer from people here. They sort of repeat the talking points that we heard publicly from the PLA that India started doing things and they were responding to it.
0: So, you know, I wonder if you could also just, just in, if we could broaden the context slightly to to include the United States. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between India and the United States in the context of of tensions between India and China you know I've seen a lot of a lot of kind of like anxiety expressed in in the Indian media about different kinds of Chinese encroachment you know kind of which is which is frequently echoed you know kind of by concerns expressed in the U.S. around around kind of a, a, a more you know a more aggressive Chinese kind of naval presence for example but one of the things that I didn't actually 100% track when it happened was this this, this incident in 2021 when um, the USS John Paul Jones um, a missile Destroyer was kind of steered into um, India's exclusive economic zone without its consent, and then you know, it, and it was it was framed um, by by the U.S. Navy as as a kind of a challenge, what they call challenging India's excessive maritime claims. So I was wondering what you know, kind of why, what what that incident signal to you, but then also kind of how we should understand this kind of dispute with the US around maritime claims in the context of all of these complaints from from both India and the US about China's excessive kind of claims about territory?
2: That's a good question. And that's something that I think the Chinese media and Chinese experts like Joe Bo, who you mentioned, have been highlighting the fact that actually, uh, when it comes to how countries look at freedom of navigation, and their rights within exclusive economic zones that India and China actually have a more sort of common understanding than the US, which, which feels that it has a right to sail ships uh, within people's EEZs, which is something that uh, India and China have objected to. That is true. But having said that, I think the, the John Paul Jones sailing through India's EEZ, I think it was something that the US has done with other countries that it would call its partners or allies because of part of its broader, what it calls freedom of navigation operations. So I don't think it's really a huge point of difference or confrontation between India and the US. I think it's something they live with, where the US might do it once in a while, India will object to it and put out statements. But I don't think that should distract from the broader trajectory, which is, I think, a much more closer India-US relationship which of course has its own logic, but there's no denying that I think in the last two, three years, I think China has given India less of of an incentive or less reasons to go slow with the U.S., which possibly India was doing in the past because it was trying to build relations with China. But I think with the change in the last two, three years, uh, I think it's given a huge flip to India-U.S. relations, especially India-U.S. defense relations, because there's very little argument right now for India to keep Chinese sensitivities in mind, uh, given what happened uh, on the border.
1: Let's turn our attention to economic relations, and there's a lot going on there. In the news that we've been covering quite a bit is the shift in production and manufacturing from China to other parts in Asia. And there's a statistic that's been carried out by Economic Times and your newspaper as well that a billion dollars of iPhones have been produced in India and shipped just this year alone. Apple's now shifting more of its AirPods and its Beats uh, headphone production from China into India. It's still a very small sliver of Apple's overall production, but it does represent a trend. And there's apparently an economic policy in place by the Modi government to attract huge amounts of Chinese uh, manufacturing to come over the border into India as well. At the same time, Indian companies, uh, correction, Indian government uh, agencies have been cracking down on Chinese companies Uh, particularly tech companies, Xiaomi, Vivo, Oppo. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Xiaomi had $682 million in assets frozen by Indian regulatory authorities. Can you talk to us a little bit about the economic tensions that are underway now between the two countries and especially this crackdown on tech companies?
2: It's uh, actually quite a very recent development only because I think since the early 2000s, Just to give some background, I think the the trade story was probably the biggest bright spot uh, in the India-China relationship because you had all these political problems, whether it was the boundary issue or India's concerns about China-Pakistan ties or China's concerns about India-U.S. ties. I think putting all of that aside, the fact that China became India's largest trading partner and still is India's largest trading partner, I think was in many ways remarkable. Uh, I think even more remarkable was that since around 2014, uh, when uh, the Narendra Modi government took over, they had an actual professed policy of trying to attract Chinese investment. And I think in the five-year period until about 2019, Chinese investment into India's tech companies, I think it sort of almost came up to the same level as investments from the West. Um, Alibaba and Tencent were among the biggest foreign investors in India. This was something that I think both sides looked upon as a very positive development. All of that has has been a complete 180 degree shift and change uh, after the boundary crisis that started in 2020. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, there's been a very big change in the Indian government's approach where not only have they essentially put a huge freeze into Chinese foreign investment coming into India, which now requires government approval, unlike in the past. But they have also begun to scrutinize the activities of Chinese companies in India, especially Chinese smartphone companies who are still the biggest, have the biggest share of India's smartphone market. Uh, they've been doing this by scrutinizing their financial practices. and They pretty much accuse them of, of not paying uh, taxes. So th- I'm pretty sure that all of these are related to uh, the change in the political relationship uh, because of the boundary, uh, and it's and I think uh, for Chinese companies that I speak to regularly, uh, India was actually a huge market for them, uh, given that they saw it as a very similar market to China in many ways. And a lot of them now are essentially putting their plans on hold or rethinking their plans because they are pretty clear that they are no longer welcome in india uh, so i think this one bright spot that you had in the relationship is no longer a bright spot and i think that concerns anyone who follows india china relations because something is i think you're seeing a shift from a relationship that had a mix of competition and confrontation and a mix of working together but i think it's it's the areas of working together are dwindling rapidly and i think that's that's obviously a very negative thing for India-China relations. In terms of India trying to get uh, Chinese investment away, as you pointed out, I think it's a, a lot of Ch- companies are moving away from China, mainly because of, I think, internal changes in China, like zero COVID and, and the like. Uh, and a lot of it's moved to Southeast Asia and Bangladesh. I think India has been a bit slow to get that investment, but you're right in that being a focus, I think, for the government at present.
1: And it's not only gotten bad for Chinese executives. Uh, Honor, which is a Chinese smartphone company, evacuated its Chinese expatriate staff other Chinese tech companies have also removed them for fear that they're going to be arrested because many of the Chinese corporate leaders have been hauled before the courts. So there's real concern that they're going to be jailed. Also, interesting point, Kobus, that India is one of the few places that has taken uh, real tangible action against Chinese apps, including TikTok. So I think somewhere around 100 apps, including many of the popular ones from ByteDance and Tencent have been banned. And this is something that's interesting for those in the US and Europe now that are considering sanctions against TikTok in particular, and India poses a a case study for that. So Kobus, a lot to, to follow there.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Just just as a tangent, I was I was recently in a in an academic meeting talking about a big project where people, which included a content dissemination aspect where people were discussing the poss- possibility of using TikTok as a dissemination channel, and then like all of the all of the Indian um, you know participants in the project were all like, yeah, sorry, we can't we can't do it in India. Um, so it was interesting. <laughs> um, but the um, so you know as uh, you know as, as we've kind of alluded to the the Xi Jinping era largely overlap with, with the, the reign of Prime Minister Modi. And, you know, in, in China, we, saw, we this was a moment of, you know, of, of, of sharply increased kind of central control, um, you know, over many aspects of, of the society. Um, but it was also the, during that time same time, we also saw the rise of Hindu nationalism, or the, the strengthening of Hindu nationalism in, in India. I was wondering how this kind of shift in mood um, within India and and Modiism, you know, kind of as a, as a kind of ideological system, uh, is affecting the India-China relationship?
2: I think that's a good question and I've seen some Chinese commentators in the last few months after the relationship turned uh, blame it on uh, what they call um, Hindu nationalism and that prompting a harder line from India. I kind of actually saw it differently uh, in more of a kind of like a Nixon to China logic where It seemed to me that Modi coming into power in 2014 with such a huge mandate uh, and also framing himself as being this kind of, you know, strong kind of leader, I think it actually opened up huge possibilities to fix uh, problems in the relationship uh, that previous governments couldn't fix, uh, starting with the boundary. And I think that Modi himself saw that opportunity and I think he did invest uh, in his first term, especially Uh, quite a huge sort of amount of political capital, even when it would have been, uh, you know, there were naysayers even probably in in, in his party, even within his own party, uh, by, uh, you know, coming to China in 2015, coming back again in 2018. And he did two other trips for multilateral summits. So he actually made four trips to China, I think, in his first term. Uh, And I think that he actually saw it uh, as an opportunity Uh, that they could make headway on on some of these very difficult problems. And I think that's what led to these two informal summits between Modi and Xi. And I think that it's fair to say that he's been stung by this. I think it's a feeling of perhaps being rebuffed, having invested in this political capital. uh, And then you see these developments on the border. Uh, So I think that's kind of the dynamic that played out where I think they saw the fact that, you know, he came to power as a very nationalistic, portraying himself as a strong man, Uh, with the hope that this would open up new avenues in dealing with China, give them space and wiggle room the previous governments didn't have. But I think, obviously, it's fair to say that it hasn't panned out that way, and it's going to be harder for him now, going forward, uh, to try and make uh, similar moves.
1: Given the fact that these two leaders have met as much as they have in previous years, were you surprised at the body language and the behavior and the fact that they didn't meet in Samarkand at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Summit. Given the fact that she literally had bilaterals with almost everybody, I mean, I think he even had one with the janitor. I mean, it was really just remarkable <laughs> how many photo ops he right. did. And that picture of the family <laughs> photo, do you remember that at the where they all stood there and they stood there rimrod? And in the video, they didn't look at each other. And these are guys who know each other. They've met with each other. They've been to each other's countries. They're in the bricks forum together. Were you surprised or someone like you who follows it so closely, you expected this? What was your take from from what happened in uh, in Uzbekistan?
2: My personal view, and obviously I think this isn't shared by New Delhi, is that my personal view is that there was a missed opportunity that they should have met. I think that uh, given that um, from, from the way I looked at it, I don't think India had anything to lose. I think obviously they were probably concerned by the optics of meeting when the boundary was disturbed. But I think that uh, why I saw this as a lost opportunity is that it would have given Prime Minister Modi a chance to convey directly at the highest level to Xi uh, the sense of concern in India at how the relationship has changed. I think it's highly probable that given what you hear about the way information filters up in China, it's highly probable that President Xi has a much rosier picture of the relationship I mean, if you read what the Chinese ambassador has said and others say, they say it's a normal relationship and everything is fine. So I think that they missed a chance to kind of impress upon him at a direct level, their level of concern. And I found it a bit strange, as you said, that, you know, it was almost very sort of school playground-ish that they're standing next to each other, then they walk apart without looking at each other uh, after having met uh, 18 times. Uh, So I thought it was a missed opportunity for diplomacy. And my understanding is, it was neither side requested a meeting perhaps it was a case where each side was waiting for the other to approach them but i think from what i understood neither side uh, made a request for a meeting so it just didn't happen but i think it also it's there's a point here i think for people to reflect on in the last few years not just with modi and she but even with trump uh, and she you you have so much made of you know person to person diplomacy personalized diplomacy uh, but I think that it goes to show the limits of that when uh, when you have had all of these sort of big meetings and informal summits, when you have a big problem, uh, they haven't even spoken once since the border crisis began, uh, even on a phone call. So that goes to show, I think, the limits of these uh, when much is made of these sort of personal equations, but when real problems surface, it kind of seems to dissolve very rapidly.
0: I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, uh, about India's own regional ambitions. Um, you know, we, we've seen we've, we've seen kind of like a, a lot of kind of worry expressed in in the Indian media about about you know being encircled by China, and and there's also been these kind of controversies around uh, around chinese influence in neighboring countries uh, notably in sri lanka um you know where there's recently been a kind of a an, uh, an somewhat awkward kind of like on again off again fight about um about whether a, a chinese military research vessel would be allowed to dock um, at a sri lankan port with uh, you know with with indian officials kind of strenuously objecting to it um how does india see its own regional role and like and and roughly kind of like what are the the kind of boundaries of of what india sees as its its immediate sphere of influence
2: i think that um the way i way i sort of track how this is looked at in delhi i think that first of all i should say i think there seems to be varying opinions on how india should look at the whole question of chinese influence i think there are people who are pragmatic uh enough to know that china being the world's second largest economy is naturally going to see a deeper presence in many of India's immediate neighbors. And it's something that India to some degree has to live with. And it's unrealistic uh, to kind of wish away uh, the reality of China's presence in the neighborhood. And that's my sense that I get from a lot of officials that I speak to, even though maybe in the media and maybe among some experts, you kind of get extreme reactions to every Chinese deal or every Chinese project. Uh, whether it's in Nepal or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. Uh, my sense is I think a lot of people are kind of aware of the reality of having the world's second largest economy uh, right here in in uh, our neighborhood. Uh, and, it, and I think it's inevitable that especially uh, a country like Nepal or Sri Lanka, it suits them to have an alternative rather than be completely dependent or reliant on one country. And I think uh, many of them have gotten pretty smart Uh, at kind of getting the best out of India and China by kind of putting Indian companies and Chinese companies against each other. And I think it's kind of expected for them to do that. I think where India would kind of see red flags is when it comes to its security interests rather than, say, just economic deals, but seeing its security interests being directly threatened or affected. Uh, For example, the prospect of having a Chinese military base Uh, in the immediate neighborhood would be something that would concern India, and I'm sure Delhi would use all influence and uh, power that it might have to prevent such a likelihood, Uh, which is why I think you saw a pretty strong reaction, which ultimately failed in trying to deter uh, Sri Lanka from hosting a Chinese uh, military vessel, a military tracking vessel. So I think that uh, you see a range of opinions. I'd say there are a lot of people who are sort of pragmatic and realistic enough about knowing that China is here to stay in the neighborhood. Uh, and I think that there's a sense that India should, in what you've seen, for example, in India's criticisms, for example, of debt burdens and the like, I think what they're trying to do, and it's still a work in progress, is to kind of present India as a different kind of power from China. I think you saw that during Sri Lanka's recent crisis, where India isn't going to go in with big projects, but try and you know, help them uh, in in different kinds of assistance and financial assistance in a way that's different from how China operates. So I think that's what India is trying to position itself as not as you know going toe to toe with China, but kind of kind of positioning itself as a, as a as a different kind of power in the neighborhood. But I think it's still a work in progress.
1: You've mentioned Sri Lanka a couple of times, and I think that's going to be a great place for us to close our discussion. Sri Lanka is a crisis that is going to force India and China to have to work together, given the fact that India, China and Japan are the three largest bilateral creditors. In fact, India this year has surpassed China as the largest creditor or the largest bilateral creditor. Again, private bondholders are Sri Lanka's largest debt obligation. But India has started pumping in a lot more assistance into Sri Lanka and surpassed what the Chinese were doing. All three of those Asian countries are at about 10% of Sri Lanka's total external debt for right now. But Sri Lanka's economy is circling the toilet bowl right now. It is on the precipice of full collapse. It does not look like the creditor committee that both India and China will inevitably be on is moving very quickly to do anything about this. India is very sensitive, as you pointed out, to the idea of Chinese incursions in Sri Lanka, China's growing influence in Sri Lanka. It hated the fact that the port of Hambantota was built. It was convinced that this was going to be a, a military-use port, a dual-use port. Uh, let's not forget that India, of course, is the origin country of the debt trap narrative that came out of uh, Brahma Chalini, uh, based on Hambantota. So there's a lot of politics related to India, China, and Sri Lanka. What is your take on how these countries are going to work together, or not, about the crisis in Sri Lanka?
2: Well, Eric, at least from the outside, it doesn't seem to be many uh, sort of clear signs of uh, of them working together. And from what at least I followed from news reports coming out of Sri Lanka, it seems that uh, in terms of the negotiations that are going on, in terms of restructuring their debt, uh, it seems that India and Japan seem to have uh, are on the same page and China seems to be on a different page in terms of, for example, the order in which they, they sort of uh, deal with owed payments uh, and their obligations that Sri Lanka will have to undertake. So from what I see, I don't think there's any discussion or engagement going on between India and China in dealing with, with the problem in Sri Lanka. And obviously, that's what Sri Lankan officials want from my own limited conversations with them is they want to see everyone working together and, and coming up with a package that, that, that suits Sri Lanka uh, and puts Sri Lanka's interests first. There's very little signs of that happening. And I think that uh, it's, it seems to be quite clear uh, that uh, the, India and China, even though a few years ago they, they were speaking about the idea of, of what they were calling India-China plus one projects in, in the neighborhood uh, as recently as 2019. The idea that Indian and Chinese companies would come together and, and do a project in Myanmar or Afghanistan or maybe even in Sri Lanka. I think all of this kind of just goes to show the importance of, of you know of, of having a stable political relationship. Uh, it opened up so many possibilities that they were looking at these things as recently as two, three years ago. Uh, but when when the sort of bottom of the relationship has kind of fallen out, I think that you're seeing this sort of reflected in so many other different ways, including in, in third countries as well, which I think is a reflection of the state of, of the India-China bilateral relationship at the moment.
1: Anath Krishnan is the China correspondent for the Hindu newspaper based in Beijing and also author of the best-selling book, India's China Challenge. Anath, thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten us all on this totally complicated, totally confusing, and you succeeded in what I always say, that we're never supposed to leave these conversations more clear-headed and more and better understanding. I'm more confused than I was at the beginning, but that's the way <laughs> it's supposed to be because these are so complicated. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect?
2: I think the easiest way would be on Twitter. Um, I tweet at my first name, last name, Anand Krishnan, uh, and I also uh, I, I have a newsletter that I put out on Substack, which I started off as a weekly, and then it became a monthly, and now it's it's uh, it's pretty irregular. But I but it's I it's a quarterly and eventually an annual. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying my I'm trying my best to sort of be more regular with it, but yeah, Twitter or Substack would be easy ways to get in touch.
1: Fantastic. So, we're going to put links in the show notes to Anath's Twitter handle, his Substack, and also if you'd like to buy the book, India's China Challenge, we'll put the Amazon link there as well for everybody. Anath, thank you so much, and we really appreciate you taking the time this evening to join us.
2: Thank you so much, Eric and Kobus. It was a pleasure.
1: Kobus, the China India relationship, as we've just heard, is really, again, another one of these Rorschach tests. You can see. Anything that you want into it. And clearly the Chinese are looking at this from one way. The Indians are looking at it from another way. In the broader geopolitical scene, the Americans, the Japanese, and others are are, are looking at it from a, a third, fourth, fifth way. This is one of the most complex geopolitical relationships that does not get the attention that it deserves, given the importance. This is not two small island states kind of feuding with one another. This is literally... The world's largest countries, number one and number two, who have 50,000 soldiers in heavy armor and Air Force jets flying over one another. I mean, it's just mind boggling what's going on. And yet the manifestation of all the tensions playing out in the economic scene, the trade scene, and then obviously in the geopolitical scene makes it, to me, very worrisome.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's also it's it's worrisome. It's also cr- super complicated in 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 terms of you know so much of so much of it on both sides also have to do with with calculations about which way the united states and other kind of great powers are going to be moving and you know kind of at the same time they have so much riding on the possibility of working together because if they can find a way of working together then they essentially become dual wagons that's pulling in like several other major economies kind of forward as well you know this this discussion of a kind of a great asian century is is, is really is really an interesting one um you know and, and it'll be interesting to see kind of whether they can do they can kind of put it together to to actually make that happen
1: and I think there's a little bit of delusion in the US discourse that India is quote-unquote on the US side here because it's a quad member India has always charted an independent foreign policy even during the Cold War It maintained very complex ties with both the US and the Soviet Union and many of those former Soviet ties have carried over into the current Russian era And that's one of the reasons why that Putin in particular has been able to fund his war in Ukraine is because the Indians have spent almost $10 billion, I think, this year on Russian oil imports. So this is very important. And the Indians are among the largest clients of Russian armaments in the world. Now, one thing that's going to be very interesting to watch is that after the poor performance of Russian military hardware on the battlefield in Ukraine, will the Indians continue to buy as much military hardware from the Russians, or will that be the opening for the Americans to get in there and to start selling some of their hardware? That being said, because of the relationship with Russia, also the participation in the war games and in the BRICS, it makes India something of a wild card for the Americans that I don't think they can count on them the same way, obviously, their treaty partners in Tokyo and Canberra.
0: Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think I think another complicating factor in there is the fact that both India and China have these very strong, very long-term kind of global south. You know, not only connections and, and networks, but also sees themselves both not only as as global South powers, but particularly as global South powers who need to reform the international system to make life easier for global South countries. And I think I think both the United States and Europe really underestimate what that actually means um, and how how fundamentally both those countries would like to to change the, the current order. You know, one one little glimpse of it was the fact that the one country that supported South Africa in the call to you know kind of to uh, to loosen intellectual property um rights over covid vaccines was india um and india you know that was a fight that goes back to hiv vaccines where where or hiv drugs where where the two of them were again fighting the the basically the the full arsenal of of the of the the european and american pharmaceutical industries on these issues you know and and i think that's only a really small kind of indication of a much wider kind of interest in in reshaping the, the the entire international order which i think will get a lot of a very sympathetic ear across across large parts of the global south
1: i'm disappointed that we ran out of time and didn't have a chance to talk to anantha about the new indian aircraft carrier and that just launched in september the ins vikrant and that's india's second aircraft carrier china this year also launched i think its third aircraft carrier, I think it's called the Liaoning. And so these two countries now are able to project power much farther than they were, thanks to these new aircraft carriers. And one has to wonder if the Indian Ocean region, known as the IOR, is going to be one of the theaters that both of these aircraft carrier groups are going to show up in. Clearly for the Chinese, the priority is going to be in the near abroad, in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, no doubt. But as you and I have talked about for years, on our Africa podcast, is that the Indian Ocean is of great strategic importance to the Chinese, both in terms of moving energy, but increasingly strategic resources, trade, and then moving increasingly through Pakistan and Myanmar to avoid the Straits of Malacca. Now that India has this new aircraft carrier, I have to wonder if the Indian Ocean is going to be a much more tense, hot region than it has been up until now
0: oh definitely definitely like one of the things that we that we picked up in you know like last year we we were going to town over this um this idea that that was that really became in fashion in in washington that that china might be building an atlantic base or might be planning an atlantic military base particularly in equatorial guinea and everyone was and we were echoing a lot of a lot of kind of defense insiders saying that that there's a lot more interest in in building bases in the indian ocean and so i think it's we 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 you know kind of we're heading towards you know in highly increased kind of tensions around that that issue particularly off the, the 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 eastern coast of africa um you know the 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 indian ocean island states um off the coast of africa are are key candidates for possible bases from both of those powers and they're 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 already like like sites of of a lot of contestation in terms of in terms of different kinds of economic and geopolitical influence between india and china places like mauritius like like the Seychelles and so on are, are really kind of like at the center of of, the, of these tensions So it'll be very interesting to see how it develops.
1: Now, since we ran out of time, we also didn't have uh, the opportunity to talk to Ananth about the China-Pakistan relationship. Pakistan, of course, is India's historic rival. The Chinese have invested more in Pakistan as a BRI country than I think anywhere else in the world. The, the, The CPEC, which is the CPEC, which is their economic corridor that they're building, is one of the... Uh, the biggest Chinese BRI projects worldwide, I think somewhere up of $40 billion. That's that's just the numbers off the top of my head. Don't quote me on that. But it is an enormous, enormous engagement for the Chinese. And it's been one of these areas uh, of operation where they. it's the point where the, it causes a lot of tension with the, with the Indians. So we're going to focus on the Pakistan relationship later in our next episode coming up. So we're going to separate that conversation out. So I hope that you'll have a chance to listen to that coming up next week. Uh, but let's leave the conversation there, Cobus, again, because I think if we dive too deep into this, it's going to only further confuse not only you and me, but also our listeners as well, because there is just so much to digest here. This reminds me a little bit of our conversation that we had over China-Israel relations, where, again, it's a it's a hall of mirrors and you just look at it from 20 different ways and you see 25 different things. So I really encourage everybody to spend more time looking at what's going on in the China India relationship. One way you can do that, of course, is go to our website at China dot com. We're covering China India relations pretty much now every day. And so if you want to stay on top of the day-to-day coverage, the day-to-day stories, the best way to do that is to sign up for a subscription at the China Global South Project. Just go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. We've made subscriptions super affordable, $15 a month uh, or $149 a year. And you can try it out for 30 Days for Free. We would love for you to join our growing community of readers around the world, especially in South Asia. So a big shout out to everybody in New Delhi who's been writing us and asking for more shows like this. So let's leave the conversation there for Kobus Fenstaden. I'm Eric Olander. Until next week, thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at Project. And share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaglobalSouth.com, where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaglobalSouth.com.